You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You came here to my home about a murder? Get rid of him. Let's go, mister. What's your pitch, Lucy? What is this information you have? the cross-examination. I didn't come up here to talk out of school. Why did you come up? Why don't we call it research or something? You're under suspension. Well, you better check with Lagana first. He might not approve. I'll have your badge and gun. Now. It's yours. Permanent. I asked for your gun, too. It doesn't belong to the department. It's mine. I'm warning you officially. Don't try to use it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. I take my coffee black, like my men. Also hoofing it on these mean streets is author J.A. Gertzman. I can't dance, but I love watching Gloria Graham do it. This episode kicks off our month of noir films. Yes, it's Noir November. This is partially to celebrate the darkness as we get less and less light here in the Northern Hemisphere, but we're also celebrating NoirCon 2014, where Jay Gertzman was a speaker just recently. As NoirCon takes place in Philadelphia... We thought it'd be good to bookend the month with a pair of noir films that take place in the city of brotherly love. This week we're talking about Fritz Lang's 1953 thriller, The Big Heat. The film stars Glenn Ford as Detective Dave Banyan, an honest cop who investigates the apparent suicide of a fellow cop. The cop's widow claims that he was in ill health, while a B-girl tells Banyan that the suicide had never been happier. This leads to her death and puts Banyan on the case. More than just pitting Banyan against the gangster and his thugs, Banyan quickly finds out the score and butts heads with the entire political machine of Philadelphia. So, Jay... As our guest, when was the first time you saw The Big Heat, and what did you think? Well, I liked it a lot. I saw it when I was in college, and what I remember is just some images like the auto junkyard, frankly. That was real. It just struck me as something that was absolutely there, and the the guy inside, the owner, seemed very real, too, very authentic. I also was struck by how nice Vince Stone's apartment was. I expected him to be a bully, a snarling bully, and really he's something like that in the book. But it's Lee Marvin, of course, in the movie, and he could be friendly and attractive uh, in the way he spoke to people. Uh, Also, suave, of course, what he did with the card-dealing girl at the retreat and throwing coffee at Debbie was a different Vince. And I was struck by his last words because he pleads with Banyan to shoot him. I didn't expect that, and I thought about it a lot since for this program, but I also thought the empty house after Banyan's wife was blown up and how Banyan was able to, although he was full of grief, 
talk respectfully, respectfully to the movers, able to hide his grief there. I, I was impressed by that. I think I saw it years ago, but totally forgot about it. So it was like revisiting it for the first time and um, seeing it for the first time. And uh, not like Titanic, though, because I like this much better. It uh, What really struck me was the visual sense that Lang has. I mean, obviously, he's a master and started in silent film. And, and the opening, to me, really had a, a lot of that flavor. And just young Lee Marvin and all of it... Uh, like, like I said, I, I really don't think there's too many missed notes. There's a couple of things that I want to bring up later uh, that seemed a little odd to me, but uh, we can kind of uh, kick those around. It'll be kind of fun to talk about. Yeah, I saw this one, gosh, I don't even remember how long ago. I was going through a real noir period when I was in college and going over to Liberty Street Video in Ann Arbor when they were still around and renting pretty much everything I could kind of get my hands on. I was going through a big Richard Widmark period and then a Lee Marvin period. So this one, I'd never really seen a Glenn Ford film until this movie and really enjoyed him in this. And I've liked him in other things that I've seen for the most part. I don't think I've really seen a bad Glenn Ford movie. Of course, I'm most familiar with him as being Superman's adoptive father here on Earth as Pa Kent. But for me, seeing him in this kind of noir cast, I found to be very interesting because he doesn't really seem like a noir guy. He seems very all-American. So I guess it was kind of fitting for him to be you know, this cop figure and not a, a bad guy. I think he'd really kind of be playing against type with that. But at times I was like, oh, I don't know if I necessarily buy him in this role, but the rest of the film is so strong and I do like his character so much that I was in for the ride. The film starts off with a bang, literally starts off with a bang because we start off with the suicide that I was talking about. And I, I can't remember the character's name in the book, but in the movie it is Duncan. So of course I keep thinking of like, our Shakespeare month that we just had recently. <laughs> so starts off with his suicide and Mrs. Duncan uh, taking the note and seeing that it might be something that uh, is more of interest to her than to the police. And we immediately start off kind of in this noir territory where we are going to get some intrigue. And I was uh, right there with it. Really, it, it goes from that and I think we're introduced to the criminal element to Mike Lagana, the head of the organization, as it were, before we're even introduced to the Glenn Ford character, which is very different than the book where we don't even get Lagana for quite a while. Yeah, that's true. When you do see Lagana, at first I think he's in his silk pajamas answering the phone. And that really carries over to when we see him in his, I guess it's his living room because there's so much there that's ostentatiously wealthy. And is obviously that's uh, what he wants. He wants to be accepted as a, as a regular member of society, as an aristocratic member. He has a lot of cultural capital. He's even got a tapestry. And, of course, you've got that big picture of his mother. And, some of the, um, and the frame is incredibly elaborate. There's rugs on the floor and um, the fireplace and the, the andirons or whatever they are on the sides of the fireplace. It's obvious, oh, in the books, because the books are interesting since there's two other kinds of books mentioned in the, I think the book and the movie. I'm not sure about the movie. But anyway, in the book, um, it isn't in the movie, but um, Banyan has these philosophy books that he likes to read at home, the kind of classic uh, British philosophers. 
And of course, it's very, they're kind of similar, and Banyan even thinks this, to the um, books that Tom, his name is Deary, Tom Deary, the cop who shot himself, had in his house, which are all travel books, but they're both kind of um, escapist in a way. Because Tom Deary is probably reading those because he wanted to run away with Lucy. I, at least that's one explanation. Because they, it's a horrible marriage. But yeah, I, I was really impressed with uh, the way Squir- Alexander Scorby pres- and Glenn especially present the uh, background uh, the, of um, of Lagana. It's really strong. You know, I didn't really recognize this Alexander Scor- Scorby um, as Banyan. When he first showed up, I thought it was Brian Dunlavey. So I was just like, yeah, I am in for a treat now because I love me some Brian Dunlavey. But he's just, I mean, he's one of these underappreciated character actors to me. But, I mean, Scorby did a great job, but I was just so excited when I thought that it was him instead. But he still did a, did a good job there. We do go from her, from Mrs. Duncan in the film, to calling Lagana, and then he's the one that advises her to hang up the phone and call the police. And that's when we get our introduction to Glenn Ford as Detective Dave Banyan. Banyan in the book is described as being a really big guy, so definitely not necessarily Glenn Ford's kind of physicality. And Banyan in the book also has this real trouble keeping his temper in check, and I can kind of see that at times with Ford but it's not as present as this kind of hulking menace that they have him in the McGivern book. One thing that I really like about uh, his character is it's a really nice counterpoint to the the hoods and criminals in that he's very wholesome. You know, he's got the wife and the kid and, you know, it's very sort of like 1950s uh, TV show kind of, you know, setup he's got there, the kitchen and them and everything. And, you know, you get the feeling that everything there is very nice and um, and and as it should be for for how he is. And then all the other, of course, relationships that are, you know, between men and women in the film are all basically either paid relationships or people who are being abused or, you know, so there's this real counterpoint between the detective who has this stable family versus the instability of relationships among the gangsters. In my opinion, what happens to Banyan after the bomb explodes is that it explodes him as well. He becomes a lone wolf, he becomes an Avenger, and there's only, I see Roger Ebert pointed this out, there's only a little, a slim difference between his murdering um, Larry, uh, the gangster who he chokes, uh, until Larry tells him exactly what he wants to know. And then he sends Larry off to his death because he says, I'm going to uh, let it be known that you talk. And of course, that's what happens. Larry is killed. And, they, and then with the widow, the only reason it looks like to me in the movie anyway, that she survived when Banyan had his his hands around her throat was that the cops came in. That's in the movie. So yeah, he really does. I think it's very interesting. He really does become angry and also almost murderous. And and there, there's I think Lang is making a comparison or a contrast both to these gangsters, even to uh, Vince Stone. We get to see that real kind of, as you were saying, Rob, this 50s kind of idealistic thing. And we get to see, unfortunately, an all-too-brief appearance by Jocelyn Brando as his wife. And there's a couple moments in there where she will turn her head and I'll be like, it looks like Marlon Brando in drag. But for the most part, she's a very handsome woman. <laughs> and, and she was 
pretty much in the early parts of her, her career at this point. We're talking what 1953 that this movie came out. So she uh, was not as well known as she would later kind of become, and unfortunately, she would never become as famous as her uh, brother. But yeah, we do get to see this really idealistic thing, and I love this whole kind of interchange that they have about stakes and how can he afford? How can she afford to buy stakes for him and serve him stakes for dinner on his salary? And there's this real, as you kind of brought up, the Jay, the whole idea of how elaborate and ostentatious Lagana's pad is versus this kind of more middle class, if not lower middle class, kind of uh, social strata that Banyan is in here. There's a little bit more of that when it comes to the book because you get to have this whole idea of Deary has a second home. There's like a vacation home. And by him having this second home, it is a real, like, immediate red flag for Banyan that probably things aren't necessarily on the up and up. Because if this guy is any form of a cop, except for maybe like the commissioner, he's not going to be making a whole lot of bread. So him having a second house is immediately tipping off Banyan that things are a little bit hinky at this point. But yeah, you're right. Jocelyn Brando, all too brief of role, because as soon as Banyan starts investigating this case, he gets a call from a B-girl, and he goes over there, Lucy, yep, you had mentioned, and then uh, as soon as that happens, he kind of gets thwarted by his boss. Hey, you don't necessarily need to investigate this. We got a call from the widow when he went over and were asking about this B-girl. Just leave it alone, and leave it alone so much that there's a bomb in the car. So we get another bang, and adios, Jocelyn Brando, unfortunately. And you're right, this is the moment. I mean, he has everything torn away from him at this point. He still has a daughter, but he pretty much needs to put her with in-laws and not see her very much, and goes on this kind of quest for vengeance, as well as a mystery, which is kind of nice that we have these two things at once that he's unraveling this and looking for the person that he wants to put a bullet in. And this was one of the false beats for me. And um, we can sort of debate this within the context of the culture of the early 50s, post-World War II, and how I think the film would be done today versus when it was done 60 years ago, is that when his wife dies, I don't really – like in the early go there in the first few minutes, I don't see anything. He just seems flat, and but he doesn't seem shocked flat. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like, oh, that happened. All right. Um, he he does have a little more force to him, I would say, in terms of like right after that he ends up at that uh, the scrapyard as you were saying. But I didn't feel a sense of loss with him. It almost seemed like it was like, oh, okay, that happened, and now I've got a mission. But I didn't really get that he was really mourning her until later in the film. It's also his toughness. He, of course, as a cop, and he's used to seeing a lot of tragedy. But you're right; it's as if he's already withdrawn from a life, you might say, in a way, and he's become this anti-force or anti-life force. It's uh, something that Lang said most of his pictures were about. They're about murder, vengeance, anger, and its results. But he also said that they all, the person, my heroes, all must struggle against this terrible fate that they can't escape. It's, all this, it's the struggle. It's everything. Uh, I, you're right. He's, he's like uh, frozen. I would like to see a little bit more of a breakdown from him. And there's a little bit more of that in the book. I mean, just a very 
little bit when they talk about them kind of pulling him away from his dying wife and everything or his dead wife at this point. And you really you just don't get that emotion from Glenn Ford at this point. And he does become very uh, cold, but we haven't spent enough time with him beforehand to know the kind of person he is, so we think, okay, maybe he was this cold in the first few minutes. I felt that his interactions with his wife, especially the steak scene and the dinner and all that, I think that built up enough because you kind of see him smile and you know you can tell that there's a, a good interaction there, that that was setting us up for a possible you know, emotional blow when she is killed. And it just doesn't seem like he reacts the way that I expected him to. And this is what I was saying. Maybe this is cultural expectation of, of now versus 60 years ago, because there's, you know, it's alluded to that he has friends or it's friends of friends who were war buddies. So, okay, world war two, they all came over and sort of like bodyguard his daughter and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of those guys are very stoic. Like, my grandfather was like that. I mean, he fought in the Pacific and was wounded, and, like, he would show emotion, but it was, you know, it was very rare, and it was very little. Like, did you see that? Wow, look at that move. You know, it was huge. You know, it was it was like the Grand Canyon, when, for us, it would only be about an inch deep. So, it's, I, I don't know if I'm looking at it through the lens, you know, 60 years back and going, if this was made today, we would have seen him, like, you know, like, pound his fist against the wall or start crying or do something, and it just doesn't seem we get that. Had it been Marlon Brando instead of Glenn Ford, I think you would have gotten a little bit more of an emotional response. You you might have gotten the Stanley Kowalski kind of outburst or something, but I just don't see Glenn Ford necessarily doing that, like, well, ever. I mean, the thing is, is I don't even know if it's necessarily Glenn Ford, because, I mean, if you're the director and you need a certain thing in order to help, you know, tell the story and, and bring this emotional stuff forward, then I would say it's on Lang. You know, it's on Lang to go, this is what I need, do it. You know, this is what I need in this scene, give it to me, you know. And I, um, so I, I'm not willing to uh, say it's all on Glenn Ford. I think it might be a combination. No, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm ragging on Glenn Ford. I mean, he has been great in plenty of movies. I'm just saying that his acting style is definitely going to be much more sedate than some of the other acting styles. But I agree with you, Rob. He probably could have gotten that performance had he wanted it. Um, Fritz Lang gotten that performance from Ford if he had wanted it. But I think you're right. It probably was a conscious decision as far as how he's going to play this and what the direction is going to be. So it's somewhere around this time that we get more introduced to the criminal element, and we get introduced to them more through Gloria Graham, who's Debbie Marsh, and she's yet another one of the females of this film. This film is really has a lot of choice roles for female actors. I mean, there's not... There's a lot of smaller roles, like unfortunately I said Jocelyn Brando was out of there fairly quick. The woman that played Lucy only had a couple of, of uh, really quick scenes, uh, Dorothy Green. But there are there's some other great female characters in there. We have Bertha Duncan, uh, played by Jeanette Nolan, who's the widow. She comes in quite a few times through the film, and really Gloria Graham is where you kind of hang your hat when it comes to this film. She is Debbie Marsh, the main squeeze, the arm candy of Vince Stone, who's played by Lee Marvin, who we talked about a lot on our Prime Cut episode um, I think like a year and a half ago. And Marvin is the number two to um, Lagana. And Marvin is 
of course, he's he's absolutely priceless in this. He, this is one of the roles that you go back to when you think about Lee Marvin. And he's not in this a ton, but his performance in it and what he does and everything, it's one of those that will, you'll never forget. And as you were saying, Jay, he can go from charming to vicious like that. Mm. No problem. Mm. Two sides, two faces. Oh, yeah which is plays definitely into where we're going to go with this stuff. You had mentioned the famous scene in the big heat is some big heat coming down on Debbie. When they go to a club, the, the bad guys are at this club. And by this time, Glenn Ford has tracked them down and has figured out who's kind of behind the death of his wife. He doesn't know exactly who yet at this point, but he's getting close and close enough that he kind of scares off Vince Stone at this club, leaving behind Debbie. And Debbie goes back with Glenn Ford, back to Glenn Ford is now living at a hotel, and they just kind of have a drink together, talk a little bit. But Vince Stone, Lee Marvin, gets completely in a rage that Debbie went off without him, even though he abandoned her. And in order to retaliate, he sees this pot of boiling coffee. I mean, this is hotter than McDonald's coffee of, you know, circa 1980. He takes this pot of coffee and throws it on her face. And the book, I have to say, is the description is even more horrifying. In the movie, of course, it all happens off screen once he picks up that coffee. But good Lord, I mean, this is one of those moments where you just, your mind goes into overdrive. It's like, what the hell just happened? Pretty ironic, but there's some other aspects of our Ways with coffee figures in the movie, and uh, at the end of the movie, what Glenn Ford does just before he goes out on another case, he wants a cup of coffee, and even then, you get some sort of uh, sense that there's something <laughs> that there's something weird about that, since what you've seen about coffee twice in the movie is so horrendous. Yeah, you'll never think about coffee quite the same that's way right. again. That, that's exactly right. They're coffee achievers. You are the new American society, the movers and the shakers. You are the new coffee generation. Because coffee lets you calm yourself down and picks you up. Coffee gives you the serenity to dream it and the vitality to do it. No other drink does that like coffee. Join the coffee achievers. Do your best. It's this coffee that really puts things into a different light for this. This changes Debbie. She realizes that this guy that she has been hooked up with for all this time, you know, she has a very low self esteem, sense of esteem. And the only thing that she thinks she had going for her was her looks. And now her looks are ruined. So she's not this vengeful female though, which is interesting. Instead of, wanting to go out and get vengeance kind of like what banyan is already on this path for seems like now she is much more introspective and thinking about how can she be a different person now that her her looks are ruined in her opinion anyway so this is what puts her on this different path and helps her 
act as this tool of vengeance for Banyan, which I found to be a pretty interesting twist. You know, like usually you have the dark woman and the light woman, and the light woman would have been Jocelyn Brando, and the dark woman would have been Gloria Graham. But rather than her being this kind of femme fatale, she manages to be a little bit of that, but really she's more of an instrument of justice. There is a comparison right at the end when Debbie's lying there dying and in both the book and the film, Banyan at this point, unlike in his hotel room, is able to talk about his wife and to her. And she says, I would have liked her a lot. That's about the last words that Debbie says. There are, like you say, those two sides and also that the fact that she's thinking, she has been thinking since she got her face slammed. And um, at one point she says, it's not easy when you've, spend all your life not thinking to be thinking thinking all of a sudden having to think about things there's one great uh, image there where she's sitting in the hotel room waiting for Banyan to come back she's she's got all the bandages on half her face and you've got some sort of a bathrobe and just sitting there and the, it's daytime but the room is very dark and the sunlight is slanting in through the blinds it's just a great image just all by itself and it does show a person who's different than they were so different than they were for most of their life and we could get really kind of heady here and start talking about how banya comes in and he lets in the light into the room and all this and kind of illuminates uh debbie and all this but i don't necessarily see that much of a heavy-handed symbolism going on in this film it is much more just kind of woven into the tapestry going back to the tapestry of of lagana's room i guess kind of woven into this as far as you know as we've been saying the two faces the halves you know you've got the the two cops you know the guy who killed himself and we've got banyan one is is very pure the other one it was very corrupt and we then we kind of see you know what face the captain is going to be giving to um he gives one face to banyan and another face to Ghana because I mean we you know you talk about people playing ball with criminals this guy's playing cards with criminals we get to see him a few more times right there at Vince's place he is the one that takes Debbie to the hospital you know after Vince scalds her so it's very interesting to me to see the way that the cops are are playing into this and that's much more um of something that comes out in the book as far as how deep this corruption goes. But I definitely don't think that you miss it when it comes to the film, especially the scene when um, you alluded to, or Rob, you had alluded to him having these World War II buddies and everything, Banyan. There's uh, the cops at one point are called off of watching the house where Banyan's daughter is. And, Rather than just kind of throwing up their hands, they band together and it becomes kind of this rallying point for all the good people who are left in the city to kind of come together. So we've got these World War II guys. We've got a couple of the decent cops that Banny knows who show up for his aid. And I absolutely love that they all come together. And that is that scene always kind of gives me chills just to hear those guys. And you know that this little girl is going to be okay because they are all there to protect her. Debbie kind of acts more as the tool of justice in this one. So rather than her just kind of sitting by or thank goodness she doesn't go back to Vince, she is the one after Banyan, Jay, you had mentioned Banyan goes over to see the widow Duncan and nearly chokes her to death. And 
he kind of pulls himself back, but I'm not sure if he actually pulls himself back or if it's the presence of the uh, cops that Lagana has sent over there that stops him from this murder. But he talks about it to Debbie. In the book, it's more of him kind of clearing his conscience a little bit. And both in the book and in the film, Debbie decides, I'm going to go over and I'm going to take care of this problem. So there isn't this scene in the book, but there it is in the film. And I absolutely love it when she goes over, Debbie goes over to see Mrs. Duncan. And she has this whole thing about them both wearing mink coats. I've been thinking about you and me. How much alike we are. The mink-coated girls. I don't understand you. What are you here for, Miss Marsh? Debbie. We should use first names, Bertha. We're sisters under the mink. You're not making any sense, Miss Marsh. I'd better call Mr. Stone and have him pick you up. You're not well. I never felt better in my life. That scene is terrific. I mean, that all happens, quote-unquote, off-screen when it comes to the book. But having that scene in the movie is crucial. And having those two women, I won't say go at it, because luckily there's no cat fight or anything, but having that confrontation, I think, is terrific. Oh, it is. It, it really is. Uh, in the book, Banyan says, I almost broke this case wide open but I couldn't bring myself to uh, break the fifth commandment, which I guess is that shall not murder. And he says this to Debbie, and Debbie is smart enough, uh, although Banyan didn't, didn't understand that she could have put two and two together the way she did, to know that if, Mrs., if the widow was dead, that the letter would come out and Vince would be, his goose would be cooked, and the Ghanas and everyone's. And in the um, movie, it's even a little more explicit, you know, that that um, that uh, Banyan tells Debbie. And Debbie goes over there, and as you said, and I'm, I'm wondering if it wasn't something that Debbie didn't think, you know, because she says in the movie, when they talk about this, I guess it's in the hotel room, Banyan says, I should have killed her. And Debbie says, you couldn't do that because then you'd, know, you'd be no better than uh, Vince or Lugana or Bellari, whatever. And then Debbie goes over to Mrs. Uh, to the widows and shoots her. And it seems to me that at that point, Debbie's like, it's just like what you said, she's taking vengeance her, on herself. But I wonder if she's not thinking, Banyan is too good to do this, but I'm not because I'm less of a person than he is. I'm just a, a big or a kept woman. I can do this um, for him because I don't have to worry about being bad. I'm a repulsive person anyway. I don't know if that's at all correct, but it seems to me that there just might be something that Debbie does because she doesn't think much of herself. She thinks more of Banyan than she does of herself. I definitely think that she probably figures that she's already damned. 
And, you know, for her, her looks were so important. She knows, you know, in her mind, her life is over, quote unquote. So her doing this, I see it definitely as my life isn't worth anything anyway. It's not worth a plug nickel. So I might as well go over and do that. And in the book, it's very telling because as soon as she's done killing the widow, she turns the gun on herself after she talks to Banyan and tries to shoot herself in the heart. In this, I like it more because then she manages to get her revenge. That moment when Vince comes in now, uh, Vince Stone, Lee Marvin, and he gets hot coffee thrown on his face, that's the moment where I am standing up in the theater and cheering this movie because I am just so glad that he is getting this comeuppance, and this was wonderful. And the look on Lee Marvin's face during this scene he is like this caged animal. I mean, this was prime Lee Marvin right here. He's got this look of, of agony from the coffee. He's got this fear on his face. He's got anger somewhere inside of him. And you just know that he's, you know, he's, he's backed into this corner and you're waiting for him to strike out. And it was just, oh, it's such a good moment. And uh, they really kind of rob us of that in the book. We don't necessarily get this kind of, you know, uh, moment. I mean, Vince pretty much uh, i won't say he goes free but he you know is waiting for the long arm of the law to get him we don't have this moment of catharsis that we have in the film as far as debbie there throwing the coffee on him and then getting vince in there and having the shootout and just you know doing it the way that it needs to happen bringing justice to vince stone which is sorely needed. I mean, he's even more despicable than Lagana. Lagana really kind of is, as you were saying, this gentleman criminal who's trying to be respectful. And that speech that Glenn Ford gives earlier in the film to Lagana about, you know, cops have homes too. I love that speech. That is so good. I'm glad to help you boys whenever I can. But I got an office for that sort of thing. This is my home. And I don't like dirt tracked into it. I see. And I violated your immaculate home. Is that it? That's exactly it. And tomorrow morning, I'll see you don't get the chance to do it again. What'll you do? Make another phone call? Or have somebody make it for you? I've seen some dummies in my time. But you're in a class by yourself. I'm stupid because I want some answers about a murder, is that it? Shut up and get out. We don't talk about those things in this house, do we? Oh, it's too elegant, too respectable. Nice kids, party. Painting a mama up there on the wall. No place for a stinking cup. It's only a place for a hoodlum who built this house out of 20 years of corruption and murder. I'm going to tell you something. You know, you couldn't plant enough flowers around here to kill the smell. I warned you to get out. Cops have homes, too. Only sometimes there isn't enough money to pay the rent because a cop gets hounded off the force by your thieving cockroaches for trying to do an honest job. George! What's the matter? You think I live under a rock or something? Your creeps have no compunction about phoning my house, giving me orders, talking to my wife like she was a... Yes, sir. Get rid of him. Yeah, and that was kind of foolhardy as he's for Banyan to do, and Banyan apparently had a history as a cop of doing things like that just because he was very Im- impressed with his ability as a cop to bring about justice. That's meant a great deal to him. They go and ream out the Ghana like that. But of course, this was the reason that they wanted to bomb his car. They didn't know, these criminals didn't know that his wife would get into it. 
but um, although Lagana criticizes Larry for that, but he is that way, but it, it makes him more sympathetic as a uh, policeman who won't take crap even from other policemen. Uh, and of course, he's really harsh with the commissioner there, which of course the commissioner deserved when he when he kind of throws his uh, badge at, at him, but uh, keeps the gun. The gun is mine, bought and paid for. And that reminds me of my gun is quick or something like that by Mickey Spillane. I had to laugh a little bit during that final shootout, though. It reminded me of Police Squad a little bit. There was one moment in Police Squad where it's it's a shot of the criminal, and he's shooting his gun. And then there's a shot of Frank Drebin, Leslie Nielsen, and he's shooting. And then they finally show them in a two-shot, and they're only like four feet away from each other, <laughs> shooting at each other. This, this gunfight is in very close quarters at the end of the big heat. Yeah. The first shot by Lee Marvin, Banyan ducks it, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> he must really be a former football player if he has those responses. He's a detective ninja. Yeah. He's in the in the entire film. It's just that you don't necessarily see him at times because he is such a ninja. Even the um, the criminals, like, uh, criminals especially, are afraid, frightened of him. He's like a... I always thought of him once in one way as a golem. Like, you know, the golem is that old uh, Hasidic fairy uh, fairy tale, I guess it really is a fairy tale, of um, a rabbi who made these incantations in order to save the Jews from the pogrom, I think it was in Prague in the 16th century. He created this avenger, mad avenger from earth. It was a very complicated thing that you had to go through an elaborate ritual to do. And he brought it to life. It was just clay. He brought it to life, and it went and, fright- and, and destroyed the... Um, people who were going to slaughter the Jews in this town. The problem was that uh, the rabbi had to stop it and reduce it to clay again before it went nuts and did things the rabbi didn't want it to do. It's very, it's very interesting because there are times when Banyan has his hands around people's throats that it's very, he's very close there to being a murderer. Yeah, he really has to pull himself back quite a bit, and that's where that temper that they talk about quite a bit in the book really kind of shows its face in the movie, which we don't necessarily get an outburst earlier on to kind of show that he's always trying to, you know, pull himself back. I think the biggest outburst in the, in the movie, like a safe quote unquote outburst is when he knocks over his daughter's castle or whatever. And it's more of an explosion in the book than necessarily in the film. It's more of like, oh, I'm sorry, honey, kind of thing. But he is really hot around the collar when he's talking and getting worked up about the situation with the police and the commissioner and just how far the the corruption goes. But we don't necessarily get that too much. So if there's another flaw, I would think that that kind of ability for him to be so violent. But then at the same time, it is kind of a an outgrowth of this quest for vengeance that he's on. And they they definitely trim down his search quite a bit from book to film as well, which I think works. I mean, it, it we only have ninety some minutes here, so it's good to just you know have him. Uh, on a much more straightforward path, eliminate as many witnesses, as many different turns that he needs to take. He finds the criminals a little bit easier, but I think that's okay. Is this a uh, a happy ending, do we think? I think that's qualified a lot. Yes, it's a happy ending in in a sense. In the book, as you said, it's a very different 
in the movie because he hasn't come back to the police force, at least not yet. But he's learned that the gun has died of a heart attack. And, of course, Debbie has died in the hospital uh, after that kind of catharsis, as you mentioned, that I think she gives to Banyan because he can talk for the first time to anyone about his wife. I think that's really key. And as he goes out in the book, oh, and Max Stone, by the way, Max Stone, that's a name in, in the book, Max instead of Vince, he's very different than Vince in the movie. But, of course, uh, McGivern didn't have a guy like um, Lee Marvin in mind. But anyway, he goes out, um, and it's dawn early in the day, and he goes out to buy a present for his daughter, and McGivern says, he's still ha- sad, but the hate was gone. That's, I think, even a happier ending than in the book, because in the book... Although there is that catharsis with Debbie, and she dies, and then it, I guess, I'm, if I remember right, it's just one more little scene uh, in the police uh, office. And he's, he's asked for coffee, then he can't drink it because he's about to go out on a case, a homicide case, or a hit and run or something. And uh, the last frame, almost, in the movie shows a, a poster on the wall saying, Give blood now. How far into Korea are we with this? I mean, have have we entered into that arena yet, or are we still um, just? I mean, I mean, I know we're just a few years post World War II, but when did the Korean conflict start? Nineteen fifty. Fifty. Okay, so we're already back into it with Korea and everything. So I guess the that fight is still going on. Yeah. Yeah. There's that weird patrolman too at the very end of the movie where banyan and his partner are headed out and there's that patrolman who comes up to him it's just like almost like hero worshiping a little bit i don't know it was just kind of the strange moment for me i was like what is this guy's deal <laughs> it's like have i seen this guy before and i just don't necessarily remember it or what what is this i wasn't coffee hugo coming right upside well he's had well banyan has uh, done something that's just amazing he has broken the case when he was uh, kicked off the squad, and he has uh, defeated and uh, the uh, the corruption, and especially the corruption within the police department. And so, I imagine everybody in the police department now may not have been true before Banyan actually solved the case. Here, worships him as saving the department, the name of the department, and the uh, decency of the city. Although we don't see him so celebrated in any newspapers. Yeah, newspapers play a huge role in the book, and I think that's definitely coming from the writer, William P. McGivern, actually having worked at the Philadelphia Bulletin, so trying to play up the role of the journalist um, a little bit more. I have to say, uh, Sidney Bohm, the guy who uh, adapted the book for the the screen, um, also worked in... uh, newspapers and he was born in philadelphia though this film doesn't necessarily take place in philadelphia it takes place in the fictional city of kenport but um the movie the book is is 100 percent philadelphia i mean it was within you know the first few pages where he's driving along near the help me out with how you pronounce that river is it the shikel it's school Okay. I've never been able to say that. Yeah, nobody. Yeah, I know. You have to be born in Philadelphia, I think. So, yeah, within a few pages, he is right along that river. And I mean, they're giving. You probably are much more familiar with it being from around that area than I am as far as like where he's at with the city and everything. So, I'm not sure exactly where Maple is and versus this versus Delaware Avenue or, you know, they're throwing out locations in Philadelphia like mad. Yes, right, right. 
uh, West Philadelphia. There's a big numbers racket going on there that Lagana has um, gotten control of. And, uh, of course, uh, Lagana's home is in the suburbs. Um, and uh, I think the home, I'm not sure where the house that uh, Bunyan and his wife have is, but it's certainly in a middle-class neighborhood. There's uh, other mentions I can't quite remember. that It's obviously... Philadelphia to a T. I think the hall or city hall, that's where the head of the police department and police offices were at the time. Uh, city hall is it's right in the center of Philadelphia. Uh, there's definitely all that. But I, I don't know but why they said Kenport, but I have in mind it might be that the uh, Columbia Pictures didn't want to get into any lawsuits since the uh, this was a really elaborate set of uh, political machinations and of um, and of prosecutions because of this nest that they had uncovered in Philadelphia. And it was, there was a big chapter in the book that Keith Oliver had written after his investigations of um, corruption in Philadelphia. And the title of the chapter had referred to gambling and numbers racket in Philly. There was some reformer, may, a reform mayor after the one who was in power when these corruption took place. And uh, he had just started. I guess it might have something to do with that, not wanting to get into any lawsuits of any kind. But other than that, I don't understand why Kenport just wanted, obviously they wanted something generic. If memory serves, they even mentioned Kefauver in the in the story. Yeah, I did, I think. And, of course, he was doing all this investigation of organized crime at that time. You know, that was the those hearings where Frank Costello's hands were appeared on television, uh, but not his face. Uh, and um, that was one of the early spectacular uh, TV shows that uh, focused on um, congressional investigations. Uh, it was really, you know, something everyone's... Uh, riveted to the set to. Uh, but in f- the actual guy who committed suicide has an interesting story, and it, it's not really uh, referred to in either the book or the movie. He had been head of the Vice Squad for a long time. He w- had a lot of um, charitable work that he was doing in Philadelphia and in the suburb where he lived, and he was very highly thought of. He was a star not only a star in the police department, simply a star because of his work with youth groups. And when all of this um, was beginning to come out, he committed suicide in his car and he left a note. It wasn't a a detailed description of um, the rackets and how they worked, which was great. I mean, if you, if for history of uh, Philadelphia at the time and for the true victims of all of this, which were the working class people who had to bet on a lot because it was one of the ways that they could um, get money. They sure as hell couldn't from salaries. But anyway, he said, I have uh, neglected my duty. I am too deeply ashamed to carry on. My wife does not know of my laxity. And then it was just, forgive me, forgive me. And uh, that was it. And they shot himself. And when it was first discovered, the, the police department, of course, tried to say it was, he was in ill health, which he wasn't. And eventually, of course, all of this came out. But the way the journalists in Philly reported that was really very interesting because they had great sympathy for the person who shot himself. He was a kind of a, although suicide is a sin, he was Catholic, he was, uh, he was admired for his courage in standing up to what he had done while all the other people ran away, you know, tried to run away and hide. I had no idea this was based on a real thing. Oh, it really is. 
and um, a real um, investigation, a real suicide, and a real change in um, party in Philadelphia. The previous to 52, there had been Republicans, the Republican machine. And I think that the Republican mayor, 50, he went out in 52, was the last Democrat, Republican mayor in Philadelphia history. So, you know, it could be another one, but uh, it's not too likely in the near future. But, um, yeah, and the people came, guy came in was a mainline reformer. Now, when you say mainline, are you talking like the subway system kind no, of I'm thing? No, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the mainline is uh, area of Philadelphia out where uh, Haverford and Villanova universities are. And it's um, a suburb which has traditionally had a lot of very attractive towns uh, where people with wealth and sophistication lived. A lot of professors from Penn and Haverford and Villanova lived on the main line. The main line was um, a place where people lived who were great art collectors and so other kinds of humanitarians, whether they were in politics or not. Uh, and it's called main line because it was just a, a railroad that ran all the way out there, a commuter-type railroad. Okay, because I do remember him saying that this was going to cause a lot of trouble on the main line. Yeah, definitely. Wealthy policemen of the police um, brass would have lived on the main line. We should probably say that this was actually not necessarily a novel at first. It was a Saturday Evening Post serial. And you can, can definitely tell that at times with some of the repetition that goes on in the book. I don't think that they had a proper editor go after it once it was kind of thrown together because there's a couple descriptions, like there's a... There's a whole subplot that's not in the film about this killer that comes in from Chicago. Uh, luckily, it's not Bad Boy Frankie um, from uh, Blast Silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no uh, second-person narration going on here. But uh, when they describe him, they describe him the exact same way, like three times. So I think that it was you know in three different chapters from the serial. But McGivern the author would go on to write quite a bit, and there's quite a few films that um, have been based on his stuff. I highly recommend to folks, uh, they check out Odds Against Tomorrow, which was based on another one of his novels. And then, um, you know, Bran again, he wrote some Kojak. I mean, he was writing all the way up until into the 80s and everything, so highly recommend. And then Sidney Bohm, the guy who uh, adapted it, and I think Bohm did a tremendous job. I mean, there are patches of dialogue that are direct lifts from one to the other. He really captures the spirit. He trims the fat when the fat needs to be trimmed and really gets us through this movie in out 90 minutes. And I think he did a terrific job. And he had, he also, you know, this was um, like he had started writing around 47. So this was 53. So it's just a few years into his career. And he's one of these guys who was just a writing machine all the way up until like the early seventies, but he just did a tremendous job as well. But yeah. And then we'll talk a little bit more about Fritz Lane, the director when we come back, but first we're going to take a break and play the first of a two part interview with Patrick McGilligan. Mr. McGilligan has written several biographies, including those on Fritz Lang, which was called Nature of the Beast, along with uh, one on the director of a film that we'll be talking about in two weeks, Nicholas Ray. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. 
second, a specially selected toy for him, and third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in High Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm, no, I, no, uh-uh. no, I've seen this, uh, boy. No, it we're was gonna have you, to, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. Christopher Media, Eminem, question everything. That's my mama. That's my mama. That's my purse. <laughs> I don't know you. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> You're the first one that's ever got that. I said it all the time, and Brianna's like, what? King of the Hill references. Yeah, King of the Hill. You won't find those on any other podcast. Eminem, question everything on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. My name is Patrick McGilligan, and I write uh, books about film. I'm an author, but I'm also the editor of many books about film, some under my own name and some as a supervising editor for both the University of Wisconsin Press and the University of Kentucky Press. Many, many film books. How long have you been writing about film? I wrote my first film book in college as a fir- initially as a term paper. I was going to compare the acting styles of Bogart and Cagney without having ever really seen very many films with either actor. I was really just looking for a way to get out of going to class. And so I started my first book in college and then uh, finished it after college and then went away for 
from it for a while, but continued writing about film for magazines and newspapers, and then eventually went back to writing books uh, full-time, um, not not quite making a living. I used to think I was always just about to make a living. The next one, you'll strike it big, right? No, it's uh, <laughs> I'd pass that illusion. Who have been some of your favorite people to write about? The only one I ever chose, you know, um, alone, meaning with of my own volition and without any other input, was Cagney in college, because after that, everything is a negotiation and everything is a publisher and a contract, because for me, it's a job. Um, it's a job of work, as John Ford used to say. So I have to get paid or otherwise I don't do the job. It's always an agreement between you and someone who wants to publish the book on that particular subject. And, and it's not always, you know, logical or necessarily intimate with, with your choices, what would eventually get selected, but there's a logic to it. I'm pretty democratic in my interests, so I tend to get interested in a lot of different things over a period of time. My publisher for about 30 years, um, who has my editor who has moved from a few houses um, and is at HarperCollins now, for whom I'm finishing a book about young Orson Welles, he loves directors. <laughs> so I've done a lot of director biographies because uh, he's very hard to convince to do other subjects. But I, I also have written about actors and I've written a series of books about screenwriters. I've written a very big oral history collection of interviews with blacklisted writers with Paul Buell. Not writers, just blacklisted people. You know, I'm pretty much interested in everything, but not everything pays the same, either in financial rewards or emotional rewards. But I, I tend to get involved with all of my subjects and like them. You know, Altman used to say, and I wrote a book about Altman, he used to say very stubbornly, and and he never wavered from this, that you know he liked all of his films equally. And you couldn't talk about of liking Quintet, you know, for example. Uh, he loved it. Oh, I love Quintet, you know. Uh, I like all my books equally and all my subjects equally, although some of them I feel closer towards and some of them, uh, you know, I spent more time on and, and that sort of thing. You've written about uh, a lot of people, both living and dead. Do you find it easier to write about those that have passed or those that are still with us? Well, I'll tell you, it's more uh, lucrative to write about people who are still alive because of the way, you know, the, the culture exists and the curve of literacy. Uh, you know, you have to... If you're writing a book about, uh, you know, let us say Oscar Michaud, which I did, uh, you have to begin by pronouncing it properly and then spelling it and then explaining who it is to white people, especially. If someone's dead or been dead for a long time, they've really passed out of the culture to some extent. You know, there are sort of magic names that that's an exception for, you know, like Hitchcock, let us say, but you know, I assure you the audience for a Hitchcock book is smaller potentially than the audience for a Clint Eastwood book or a Jack Nicholson book just because they're alive. They're in the newspapers and in the magazines. They are usually still making films and so they're they're giving you know, their their brand name is is helping, you know, with publicity even before you write a word. Uh whereas the brand name of uh older people who are deceased, they fade. Most of them fade, you know, so that a book about Nicholas Ray, for example, has a cult audience, 
waiting for it. But cult audience, by its very definition, is a number of people that's uh, shrinking as we have this conversation. When you get approached to do a biography, say on Nicholas Ray, do you kind of take on that reporter role from Citizen Kane and you're out interviewing as many people as you possibly can? Or I do, but I do, but it's changed. I mean, it's changed. On my first book, you know, I did it almost, Jimmy Cagney, I did it almost entirely out of the library and some letters and one trip to the Library of Congress and some trips to see movies of that at that time were very difficult to see. So very little, you know, repertorial involvement. Later on, as I became more skilled and practiced as a reporter, I went back and redid that book because um, I vastly prefer the repertorial approach to thinking out of my own imagination and brain, which is pretty limited, and writing essay-type books or, you know, books about films I love or something like that. And then for a long time, you know, that's what I did. I'm revising my Jack Nicholson book now for publication in the future and because it's about 15 years old and you know I reread what I did with some astonishment you know all the places I went and all the people I talked to because I do my best to forget it and uh, it's pretty extensive but you know then when you get up to um, even Nicholas Ray but but certainly now Orson Welles you know, Orson Welles is going to be 100 years old next year. So the people who knew him, and my book, by the way, takes place entirely before Citizen Kane and is about Citizen Kane, the, the sort of formation of Citizen Kane through the backstory of his life. You know, he, there's nobody who knew him who's still alive who you can really quote with trust um, or with, with good repertorial authority. So you are obliged then to go to microfilm, archives, collections that haven't been, court documents, and look and hope to find things that no one has ever gone that deep to look for before. And I'm always amazed, because I am trained as a reporter, and I'm a journalist, and that's what I am, and the way I think of myself, that that kind of repertorial work, even that kind of repertorial work uh, in archives and libraries and collections and uh, town histories and that sort of thing. Even that has not been done. But it changes, so I'm not talking to as many people about Orson Welles. I mean, I'm not sure I've talked to, you know, I don't think I've done an interview per se. Now in my time, I've met many people who worked with Orson Welles, and I can go back, and I do this in all my books, I go back and sometimes quote myself from published pieces, and I actually have, you know, unpublished memoirs here by people like Jack Berry, who worked with him on the Mercury Theater, um, and then later became a Hollywood director and a blacklisted person. So I, there's there's good sources, but you don't, I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I don't talk to 97-year-old people unless I'm really convinced that um, they have, not to put it pejoratively, but that they have their marbles because I, I don't even think it's fair. I mean, I don't think it's uh, it's right. Yeah, I was very pleased when I received your books, and these are not these kind of, you know, at the checkout in the supermarket kind of biographies. I mean, these are so thoroughly researched, and these things are, are they could, you know, break your foot if you dropped one of them on there. Yeah, I always tell people, don't drop your foot. <laughs> don't drop on your foot. Hitchcock especially. And the Wells book is pretty big, and the Lang book is pretty big. And, you know, they had pretty big, long careers. You know, with Hitchcock, the trouble is he, 
he directed, you know, maybe 53 films, depending on which of the silent films you want to count that he maybe was a co-director of or, or which are partial. And then he produced a lot of work, including in television. And you can't skip one of those things or, you know, somebody in the world's going to like ream you out because he's Hitchcock, you know, so you can't skip over it lightly, uh, which you can with some Nicholas Ray films, for example, or even Fritz Lang films. And then, you know, there are so many books about Hitchcock. Your obligation is to produce one which is either 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 better than all the ones that came before or more comprehensive or is so succinct and concise and brilliant, you know, which is really not my forte. You know, to so succinct, concise, and brilliant that that it can be a hundred pages. You know, so uh, I was obliged to go in the opposite direction with Hitchcock, to some extent with Lang, and to some extent with Wells, because there's so many other books to answer, most of which are in various ways. They all have something good in them, but they all are in various ways non-repertorial. So when you approached the Fritz Lang project, how did you decide what you were going to kind of focus on? How, what was your process to put this together? I'm trying to give you short answers, but there is no such short answer to these things. I mean, honestly, I hadn't even thought about Fritz Lang. He, I, he was one of the few people on my list of subjects I've never met or glimpsed even. And uh, I think he was suggested to me by Todd McCarthy, who in those days I used to talk to about book subjects, and uh, he was on a list with a few other subjects, and he was circled by the publisher of St. Martin's Press, who was a big uh, fan of German films, and to my great surprise, for example, Clint Eastwood was on that list, and I know I asked, can you pay as much for Fritz Lang as you would pay for Clint Eastwood, because for me, it's a job. I had to pay my way, you know, as I was doing the work. And they said, yes, I was very happy. I knew it would be an interesting book. I didn't know that much about Fritz Lang. I probably knew more than my mother and, you know, the average person. But the first thing I always do is get on a plane and go to where they were born and try to find records and people that knew them when they were young and go around the neighborhood, the church, local newspaper, that sort of thing. So I got on a plane and I went to Vienna and I don't speak a word of German except nine. That must have been a little challenging. It was. It was challenging. Uh, I was very fortunate to put up a like a little note card on the University of Vienna bulletin board and find a researcher who spoke German, but if she was English, I'm not sure she was English, but she's she's English uh, in background, and uh, she stuck with me for the whole book and was extremely helpful. And also, I, you know, when you go places, you find things. Vienna was a very good place to go. <laughs> and after that, Berlin, Munich, that book, I traveled more for that book than any book. Berlin, Munich, London, Wyoming, you know, where he had his home movies in an archives. Uh, always New York. I mean, that's one of, been one of the pleasures about writing about Orson Welles when he was young because he was born in Kenosha, which is about an hour away. He lived in Chicago, he lived in Woodstock, he lived in Madison, all these places up until he finally left, you know, in the mid-1930s to go to New York and then to Los Angeles. So a lot of the work could be done without those long, you know, arduous and sometimes very challenging trips. Kind of like with Wells, how he had such a rich life before he even made Citizen Kane. It, it seems like with Lang, you could just focus in on the films that he made when he was in Europe, and that would be a, a book unto itself. 
You could. I mean, the problem then, and it's less of a problem now, but it's still a problem, is that a lot of those films are partial or they weren't available or they were hard to find and hard to get. So that you can't write about them with the same... In the case of Hitchcock, you could write about anything he did and people would be fascinated because his name is Hitchcock. If you write about Lang and anything he did, some of the stuff isn't available, not as many people care about Lang. So you really always have to find with these people a story, you know, that you are following and actually tracing. And at, at least in that way, Lang did have, you know, he had his World War One experience, for example, and then his attempt to be an artist, which is pretty interesting. And, you know, we could find his World War One records just sitting there waiting for me to walk in, you know, in Vienna. This ancient, uh, with all with all the uh, people in charge, the administrator is very amused to see this sort of gawky American who couldn't speak any German coming in and asking to see them. But at least Lang, I mean, Lang had a dramatic life story, unlike Hitchcock, you know, who never did anything much other than make movies and create. So you're sort of unlike, you know, writing about John Huston and every once in a while you get to go elephant hunting in the book, you know you're stuck at a desk or in front of a group of actors telling them what to do and you have to create a dramatic narrative out of that it's it's more challenging than in the case of Fritz Lang who has prostitutes and murdered or killed or suicidal first wife and Nazis and later on communists and and then later on Godard and, and a pet monkey he carries around or fake pet, pet monkey that he carries around, puppet monkey, is colorful to say the least. And a lot of that was known and a lot of it was not known and a lot of it hadn't been put together. Sometimes it's a question of, you know, sometimes it's an arduous task of putting pieces together. I mean, that was true in the case of the Oscar Michelle book, for example, because a lot of silent screen scholars and a lot of black history scholars had, had written a lot about Michelle. And so a lot of the pieces were there in various places, usually in scholarly ways that I had to extract and turn into narrative or repertorial parts of the book. A lot of that was just waiting around to be assembled by somebody who was willing to go to the effort and then fill in the pieces with other research. But in the case of Lang, which is a very intimate book, and it's true also, I think, of the Ray book, these were colorful, strange characters. So, you know, there's a lot a lot of, you know, character study going on in the book as well as narrative, which you can't, you can do with Hitchcock, but he's, like I say, he's not taking a break to, uh, he's not even taking vacations for the most part, you know, in his career until about the late 1940s when the doctors start telling him to. And he's just making film after film, and you have to be aware of a narrative that's, the next sentences, and then his next film was, you know. Lang worked as a director for over 40 years, he had so many different types of films that he did and everything, but he really seemed in America to be making a lot of films noir. What do you think that it was about him, or how did he kind of get involved in that? Did his style kind of naturally mesh with that? What's your thoughts on that? What did he do in Germany? You know, he did spectacles, and he did uh, mythology, but he also did, you know, some crime films that that were a little bit more fantastical than our crime films, but were in league with or, you know, overlapping our ideas of film noir 
Uh, honestly, in, in, in both cases, Lang and Ray, they're kind of forced into film noir by their pecking order of the studios. It was a relatively congenial place for Lang to end up in terms of his psychology because he's very interested in crime and punishment and Emma's, you know, one of the great pictures of all time. He's very interested in crime and punishment. He's very interested in prostitutes and fallen women, you know, that sort of thing. And that's those those kind of characters and themes and ideas, you know, recur in film noir. Lang had really come to a bad pass uh, in America. He arrived having been a kind of god in Berlin where uh, people were obliged to follow his every whim and dictate. And then he came here and had to adapt to the studio system where directors were not gods and very few were allowed to act like gods, even rarely. He was, you know, fired or came a cropper at studio after studio, eventually, you know, coming down to low-budget studios before he sort of clawed his way back, you know, right around the time of the big heat. And by doing crime films and kind of well-regarded crime or thrillers or suspense, you know, all of which is sort of very broad rubric, but he was comfortable in that. Yeah, I don't think it was a, you know, but what he wasn't comfortable in was in the American studio system where they had to do, he had to do certain things because producers and the executives told him to because in Berlin he could do whatever he wanted to do for a long, long time. And consequently you have these sort of lavish and crazy and one-of-a-kind films like Metropolis and even M, which is very, very distinctive for its time and even if you watch it today. And the films that he made in America are much more like, you know, fitting into a genre because that's what the studios were dictating. And I think Lang's triumph by the time he gets around to the big heat is that he had finally figured out how to do that to some extent with a film that made him feel comfortable at a studio, Columbia, that was now accepting him back, partly because he had gotten off the gray list because he was suspected of being too left-wing and he had made some accommodation behind the scenes. So, in a way, they're relegated to film noir at this point in their careers. I mean, Ray starts in film noir and then he kind of stays in film noir for quite a few years. Or, you know, film noir or not great films before Rebel Without a Cause, you know, lifts him up into a separate category very briefly uh, in his career. But they weren't A directors. I mean, they just weren't, they might be considered A personalities. Certainly, uh, Lang, meaning he had a huge name, but they weren't A directors. And film noir is a B genre. I mean, it just was. Very few first echelon directors uh, did it. Or if they did it, they did it so differently, no one calls it film noir, you know, or they argue about whether it's film noir. Oh, you could say Hitchcock directed this or that, and it was film noir like Strangers on a Train, but, you know, he would just really wince to hear that. And that's a good example because it was a low-budget movie that he was kind of making when the studio gave him, like, a little bit more free reign and wasn't paying attention, but it was, you know, twisted and killer and double identity and everything else. And, and uh, again, he could fit comfortably into that, but also he could then turn around and do, like, a romantic uh, caper film, you know, with Cary Grant, because he had all the power to do whatever he wanted to do, really. Not all the power, but he had, 
at that point, he had more power and always was more of an A director than Lang or Ray. How do you kind of see the big heat fitting into Lang's body of work? It's his greatest American film. I like it a lot, and I don't understand why other people don't like it more, why it's not more generally regarded. For example, in a lonely place, it much, has much more of a fervent following than the big heat. Uh, I think because Lang, with the big heat, had become a kind of more matter-of-fact director, but that sounds like a negative uh, adjective. But what I mean is he, you know, his sort of all of his flourishes that he was known for were restrained. And there's much more identification with the material and much more like a common-sense approach to putting the story across. I think it's a stronger story than he ever had, a stronger uh, script, really great script. I think the reputation of the film suffers maybe because people don't think that much always of Glenn Ford, who made so many films and some very, very good. And But I think Ford and the rest of the cast are just exemplary. And I think, fortunately, but also because Lang had a much more dogged career than Ray did. I mean, Ray fell apart and he did not have a long career. But Lang, over a long period of time, persevered and stuck around and got his licks in where he could sort of thing. And this was his way at towards the end of his career, and it is towards the end, end of his filmmaking career. It's a long way from the end of his life, but it's still towards the end of his filmmaking career. He really, really got a good property, and he got a good cast, and he got a subject that he really could identify with, which was a person who was nursing a terrible wound, you know, in Glenn Ford, who's looking for revenge and, and, and the sort of pure evil, Lee, Lee Marvin, and the sort of uh, the terrible hurt of Gloria Graham and her character. This was perfect for him, and I think it's a, a nearly perfect film. And mostly, though, it's except for, you know, a couple of moments, you know, like, you know, the famous brutal Lee Marvin scene of the scalding coffee, except for a few moments, which is all it really needs. It's a very understated film, and most of film noir is uh, overstated. (laughs) Overstated. Overstated in the lighting, overstated and sometimes in the obviousness of things, Um, uh, overstated in its ideas. And uh, Lang has you know, could be accused of, you know, overstating things um, often in his career and sometimes to to great effect. But it's a very understated film, so it's a mature film, you know, I think. And I don't know why it's not, you know, as more celebrated than it is. Thanks again to Mr. McGilligan for coming on the show. You can hear the second half of our interview with him in two weeks when we talk about Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. This week we're talking about The Big Heat. And if you'd like a free copy of The Big Heat audiobook, um, you can get one. You can go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth, and you can get a free download of that book when you sign up for Audible. Now back to the movie. As we mentioned before the jump, the film was directed by Fritz Lang, who had worked in early German silence. Of course, uh, probably his best-known achievement was Metropolis, but we'll be talking more next week when we discuss Edward G. Ulmer's detour as something of a direct line between German expressionism and film noir. So, gentlemen, have uh, either of you seen uh, other pieces of Lang's work? I have. I really love 
the guys were. I have a quote, because I looked this up from Truffaut about Fritz Lang, and he says, his, his work is about moral solitude, man's struggle against a half-hostile, half-indifferent universe, which does remind me of Banyan. I saw Metropolis, and um, which is a strange theme. His first, it was from a novel by Lang's first wife, exploitation of industrialists, by industrialists of workers, and there's a weird father-son contrast in there. There's a sinister uh, inventor who's also um, a, was a um, competitor for the love of this famous industrialist's wife, and he, this sinister inventor called Rotvang, creates a robot double of the heroine of the movie, who's fallen in love with um, the son of this industrialist. And this Maria, that's her name, she's a robot double, I should say, of Maria, is a seductress. And there's one really fantastic scene where she goes to a nightclub with, this is the early 20s, I guess, and where uh, young men are all dressed in uh, monkey suits or, you know, uh, tuxes. And she drives them crazy with her dance, her hip-swinging dance. And uh, the scene ends with these guys all going crazy, fighting each other to try to get, I guess, to the stage. And the, the scene dissolves into a set of eyes, which are all the men's eyes, just lusting for this woman. They're, they've become all animals kind to of kill each other. And then that scene dissolves into a scene of the city. You're seeing the city from above. It's all very dark, and there looks like there's, mo- there's demons flying into the city at that point. And it's a fantastic image of looking at someone instead of actually having contact with someone can do to people, which is a big theme, I think, not just in lying, but in modernism in general, um, voyeurism, you might call it, and sadomasochism, which is a substitute for actual sexual contact. Uh, that was one of the things in the film that I thought was just fascinating. Lang had a lot to do with it, sexual strangeness, like M, which was about a uh, person who was uh, a child molester. It was Peter Lorre. And this, he has enormous paranoia and self-hatred. And he's almost like Kafka's uh, K, who gets turned into a cockroach, and he has to live as a cockroach. He doesn't, Lorre doesn't change from a man into an animal, but the way he behaves in the film, the way he slinks about, it's almost as if there is no humanity left. It's been eaten away by this compulsion he has to have sex and kill children. Uh, at the end of the movie, there he's put on trial, but not by the law, by criminals in the city who who kidnap him because they want to they want to kill him. Uh, but first, they want a confession because the, he's brought the big heat down that it's the police on the, in the city on all of the criminals because they're all looking for this this monster who's killing women, and they, the actual criminals, can't do what they ordinarily would do, which was steal and murder and extort money from people, as they always have done because there's so much of the big heat on. So it's really a comment on the city life and on city paranoia, uh, which I've never seen anything better. At the very end of this, Lang has some uh, placards up. And he's warning in these placards the mothers of Berlin to keep a closer watch on their children. And that's ridiculous, except as a kind of paranoia that you know is um, stimulated by the dangers of the city. I've never seen anything like it. He did Stranger on the Third Floor, where an aspiring reporter was a key witness at a murder trial of a young man who's accused of cutting 
a cafe owner's throat, and then he is accused of another crime, and this, that's Peter Laurie again. And it's another film about someone who's hunted, and hunted because of um, the way that the whole city is needs a scapegoat, and he's it. I don't know if you guys have seen Scarlet Street or The Woman in the Window. Those are American films, and they have Edward G. Robinson in them, and they're kind of like double films of each other. The Woman in the Window, a professor falls asleep and dreams that he's involved with a beautiful woman for whom he becomes a murderer. Then he wakes up. Uh, so he's just been sleeping in his chair in his club. But in Scarlet Street, uh, Edward G. Robinson is a painter, a kind of a henpeck painter, who meets uh, Joan Bennett, beautiful woman, gets deeply involved with her, and Dan Derrier is a crook, a criminal, who has to be control of uh, Joan Bennett. She's in love with him. And through, jo- through Joan Bennett, he gets um, to, to uh, use the paintings of, uh, this, of Edward G. Robinson, also money that he has Edward G. Robinson in Bezel. And as a result, Edward G. Robinson is trapped and his marriage is destroyed, and he, he overhears these two people, uh, Joan Bennett and Dan Duryea, laughing about all this. So he goes a little later, he stabs Joan Bennett to death, and Dan Duryea is put in the electric chair for this crime. And the movie ends with Edward G. Robinson being a homeless bum, trying to tell everybody he meets, and no one will listen to him, that he's the murderer, and he ought to be executed. Of course, no one listens to him at the end. It's a snowy Christmas, uh, and Edward G. Robinson is, say, a homeless man muttering to himself while the policemen uh, talk to each other and snicker about this crazy guy who keeps telling them that he's a murderer. I mean, that, that's the, the, those things... Those movies are unbelievably good, and and they make you think so much. Uh, they they really are dazzling. I really I have sadly not seen as much Lang as I want to. I really am as the one that I've seen multiple times, and I always seem to see it uh, on the big screen. I don't know if I've ever watched it on video, which I'm kind of happy about. I have seen it on the big screen at least one time in film school and at least once down at the Detroit Film Theater. And it is just such a gorgeous film and so captivating. And I love the way it's a, it's an early talkie and the way that they use music in this is terrific. And it just leads to so many other great films that kind of rift off of this or just kind of openly took from it. I mean, the use of the um, the music that Peter Laurie is whistling through it, and uh, just the the old man, the blind man who kind of fingers um, Peter Laurie. The one shot of the huge fingerprint as we get to see the kind of machinations of the police force as they're trying to find this guy, and just the way that the criminals are the ones that put him on trial, and just that kind of kangaroo court and the way that he that Peter Laurie just yeah just loses his shit in this movie and this was like my introduction to Peter Laurie and you know I can't not love this guy he is just amazing so how about you Rob have you seen a lot of Lang I've only seen uh, now the big heat Metropolis and M but I do agree with you on both Metropolis and M they both had a huge impact on me when I saw them and uh, I've seen several different versions of Metropolis because there used to be one version that was out, and then they found that print in South America that was pretty much a 
intact print, and then they added some extra stuff to that. So, and uh, I've been lucky to see Metropolis uh, in theater at the Detroit Film Theater with. Uh, uh, live score done by the Alloy Orchestra, which I think is really a way to see it. Yeah, whenever they do their scores to stuff, it is just amazing. Every year at the Maryland Film Festival, they come out and they will take a silent film and add a score to it, and it is just terrific. You really can't get much better than a live accompaniment to something. And of course, when I think of Fritz Lang, there's that great line in uh, Contempt where he plays himself that, um, you know, widescreen is only good for snakes and funerals. It's just him, and um, it's kind of interesting to watch because it's him and Jack Palance, and Jack Palance mm. berates him, what are you shooting here? And then he starts throwing film cans around the screening room. Yeah, that's a great novel, too, and it's, it is Fritz Lang. Yeah, he, to your point, Jay, he has directed so many just kind of touchstone films noir and um, – you know, stuff that I definitely want to check out more of his stuff. And I, I also want to look at all of the Dr. Mabuse films because I think he directed at least, what, like three or four of those? Yeah, at least three or four. The Nazis banned them. I mean, he had, when they first came to, to power, uh, uh, Himmler, I think it was, called in Lang and he said, Mr. Lang, uh, we're banning Mr., uh, M- uh, your Mabuse films. We don't like the. Uh, disrespect for authority, but we want you to be the head of, uh, what's the name of that company? The, the, UFA? The, yeah, that's UFA, yeah. We want you to be head. Uh, I think it was less than a year before Fritz Lang, whose mother was Jewish, left Germany. Yeah, if folks um, want to take a look, um, we had Howard Rodman on here a few months ago, and he wrote a book called Destiny Express, which is kind of a fictionalized, not-so-fictionalized accounting of Fritz Lang in those late days before he leaves Germany. And I've read it before, and I highly recommend it. It's a really good book. By the way, They Clash by Night is one of the greatest Fritz Lang films. It's an American film with Barbara Stanwyck uh, in, in it, and Marilyn Monroe's in it, too, and uh, Robert Ryan. This is a great film. And I know we're going to be talking about this a lot more next week when we talk about Ulmer, but really Lang is one of the guys that proves this as well, is that you know he was dealing with this very powerful expressionistic German film um, in his native land and then being able to, to come over to the United States. And he, I think he floundered a little bit with a couple things that he was trying to do. But then once noir kind of came into its own as a style, he was able to just, you know, or he was one of the generators uh, you know, of noir style. I mean, these German directors coming over, fleeing Nazi Germany, bringing their their sensibilities into American culture brought us into this world, this dark world, and I just absolutely love it. And So he created so many of these terrific touchstone noir films that, you know, just kind of fueled not only, you know, the, the noir sensibility, but then other noir films as well. Yes, absolutely. Well said. How do you guys kind of feel the big heat fits into this kind of noirish world. Rob, have you seen a whole lot of these? I've seen some noir, but I can't say that I'm a big um, viewer of them. I don't have a huge uh, history behind me to sit here and quote basically chapter and verse like you guys can. That's fine. You don't have to. I mean, it's just, um, you know, you've seen probably some Humphrey Bogart films. Well, I'd say I've seen the big ones. I mean, like everybody sees the Maltese Falcon, um, 
you know, uh, I, I, and I would say, you know, Touch of Evil. Uh, there's a couple others in there. I mean, would you consider Laura in there? Probably, um, you know, I'd say maybe a dozen. So you've gotten to see almost all of these films are detective story of some sort, whether the detective is a detective or the detective is something else. But there's always a mystery to be solved. You know, what happened to Laura? Is Laura still alive? Why am I falling in love with this painting? You know, or what is this dingus called the Maltese Falcon? So one of the things that I like, though, is the way that they kind of play with the detective character. And is that detective part of the police force is he on the outs with the police force that he used to be a cop i mean that whole idea of jake giddis used to be a cop and now he's this private eye and making his living from divorce cases and everything in chinatown in the big heat it's kind of an interesting one for me because he starts as a cop he gets kicked out of the police department and then he ends as a cop which is a very unusual trajectory for these characters to take did you see Where the Sidewalk Ends? It's an Otto Preminger film from 1950. And there's a, Dana Andrews plays a tough cop who's become really violent with killing criminals. He kills one suspect. And then he shuts up, and he shouldn't, when the father of a girl he loved is accused of murder. Eventually, he falls in love with this woman, and uh, he sort of straightens out. Uh, it's interesting, too, that um, he was a war hero and eventually tries to clear the father of the girl he loves, but without incriminating himself. It's really a kind of a, again, a two-sided type of uh, version, but the anger of the cop is, reminded me of Banyan. There's uh, Kansas City Confidential, which is one of the best films about corruption. Phil Carlson did that. It was the same, came out the same year, I think, that Big he came out, and it starts with a war veteran being beaten up by local police. And he, the war veteran, tries to unravel this crime syndicate. And Rob mentioned the Maltese Falcon, and of course Spade, Sam Spade, that is Humphrey Bogart, and he's kind of single-minded too, in a way, pursuit of the gang, like Banyan is. Of course, his wife hasn't been killed, but at the end of that movie, he, Mary Esther, who's playing Bridget Shaughnessy, the uh, girl who's part of this gang that's led by um, Green Street, tells Sam Spade she loves him. And Spade says, well, I'm going to turn you in. And he says, it's not because I'm not in love with you. Maybe I am. But I can't trust you. And she sa- and Mary Esther says, well, do you think that I'm lying when I say that I love you? And he can't answer her. And after this is done and Mary Esther is taken away, he talks to a secretary of you know, Sam Spade, a secretary who's pissed off a lot at Sam Spade. And, and he says to her, your boss is a detective. In other words... I don't give love and mutuality to another person because being a detective takes the place of it for me. And that's a lot like um, uh, Marlowe in those, you know, in the, in the, um, in those, all those novels by Chandler because there's plenty of women there who like him and they're smart and they're not at all tainted in any way. And they help him a lot. And he always throws them over, I guess partly because if he did, then... Chandler couldn't write another book about him, but, you know, still, it's something about being a detective that prevents you from being a complete human being. Yeah, there are certain characters that always need to remain confirmed bachelors. Yeah. Philip Marlowe is definitely one of those. Right, and he drinks a lot, too. God, those movies, they just make me thirsty when I watch them. 
even though we have the kind of denouement at the end there with the um, police station and where Banyan is getting a little bit of this hero worship, it still feels like this movie ends with the world not being in balance for me. And that's one of the things that I like about noir is that there is that imbalance. I think this could have been a typical detective story had it not been for certain things, the way that it was shot and a few of the other things. But definitely this ending, we don't have him partnered up with Debbie. Debbie was definitely a a flawed, quote-unquote, woman. And we don't have him and his daughter at the end of it. I mean, she seems to be safe, but we don't see her again. So it definitely feels like things are bad, but it's not as bad as other ones. As we go through this month and talk about noir films, we're definitely going to get into some rougher waters. But we're we're starting off easy with this one, I think. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? I can't believe that you're in love with me. I hate the thought of being so far away from you, but we'll be together again someday. I'm on your mind each place you go. I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world. A woman. Hey, you! Come on if you want to ride. What's your name? You can call me Vera if you like. There's a folding bed behind this door. You know how to work it? Just can't imagine that you love me. Just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. I'm the lucky one. I can't Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you, what could they do to me? Give a lift to a tomato, you expect it to be nice, don't you? That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour, where we'll be joined by Professor Richard Edwards of the Out of the Past podcast. We want to thank this week's guest co-host, J.A. Gertzman, for coming on the show. Other than speaking at NoirCon, what have you been up to lately, sir? Last year, I, I finished a book, and I had published, about a very interesting guy in American publishing history named Samuel Roth. This guy was ostracized from the uh, profession of letters from publishing Ulysses without permission. He turned to pornography, and he spent time in jail for that. But he's also a real hero of freedom of expression, and if it weren't for his case before the Supreme Court in 1957, which he lost, uh, which had to do with trying to define obscenity as something other than some general term like um, indecent, or um, demoralizing to the um, most uh, impressionable mind in the community, uh, it wouldn't have been that um, the famous books like uh, Lady Chetterley's Lover and and, uh, Naked Lunch and The Tropic of Cancer would have been allowed publication a couple years later. He was in jail still, but the Grove Press, using the, the arguments that were made in his case by the minority opinion, got all their stuff and uh, being allowed to be published. So he was really wound up a hero. I'm writing a book now, too, just starting to write on um, David Goodis. And if you're interested in that, you can just Google Pulp according to David Goodis. That's the title of my Facebook page, and that's, I hope, the title of my book, Pulp 
according to David Goodis. Cool. We'll be sure to link to that over at our website, projection-boot.com. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And you know, We'll be back next week as uh, the November Know Our Goodness continues. And make sure to stop by our website, projection-boot.com, and you can learn more about Jay and his work, Patrick McGilligan, and The Big Heat. So, um, uh, gentlemen, what are you taking your coffee? Oh, tea. Someone. Fun.
list of babies Step aside, we're coming through If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.